Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Uh, We are entering week four of our 40 Days for Fullness uh, experiment that we've been doing this fall. Uh, Today is day 21. It's the halfway point. Uh, I did get an email this morning notifying me that, well, I had a, a few people reaching out notifying me that, uh, that the, the audio posts for today had not posted. So I apologize if that was a part of your morning routine that was disrupted today. Uh, I, I thought, is it the time change? What could it be? And, and sure enough, online, it, it was set to post at 5 p.m. today, not 5 a.m. So um, I'm pretty sure that's my fault. So sorry about that. Uh, I look forward into the fall, you know, in the coming week to try to make sure we, this doesn't just happen again right away. We should be good to go for the next few weeks. So that link, sh- or the next few days at least, this that link should be working. And uh, and I know it doesn't come to your phone until 6 a.m., but that actually posts at 5 a.m. So if you want to get up early and just click on that link from the day before, it'll take you to the new day after 5 a.m. Uh, I do know that usually about this point in a six-week venture is the point when some people maybe start to fall off or it's an easy point to decide, well, they're already halfway done. I don't want to jump in. And I just want to encourage you at that, at this stage in our journey to, if you've missed a few days, that's all right. Jump back in, press back in. If you're late to the start, that's okay. Jump in, press in. Uh, Remember, we serve a master who pays a day's wages, even if you show up in the last hour. So, Jump in. We're, we got three weeks to go on this adventure. And, um, and then we also, we strategically planned just a really sweet week here at the halfway point. A week that is sure to, uh, to just, uh, inspire you and, and draw you back in with, with a fun filled week, uh, with the theme of sacrifice. Uh, <laughs> I know, I know. When, when we were putting this whole thing together, uh, we're kind of trying to decide what content would be for different weeks. And, and I saw, and sacrifice was one that we felt we should have. And then I saw it was at the halfway point. And as we're moving towards it, I'm like, oh, is this a bad idea? Uh, because, um, because sacrifice really tends to be unpleasant. The, the nature of the concept of sacrifice is that, well, if it was fun, it wouldn't be a sacrifice. Um, there's no such thing as a comfortable sacrifice. Usually there's no such thing as like a fun or an, an easy sacrifice. And, um, you know, if I'm having a good time doing this, then it, it really isn't a sacrifice at all. Uh, imagine that we were trying to uh, sell you on the idea of coming to our square dance night on the 17th. And we said, you know what? Come to square dance night. It's going to be a real sacrifice. It, it won't be any fun. Uh, people are probably going to be rude to you. Square dancing is pure torture. And and really, this is just a trick to get us all to head over to Kyle's work and clean his gym for him. Um, people wouldn't buy that, right? B- but because we've told you how fun it is and how great it's going to be, you're all going to be there. I think this is one reason why, uh, particularly in our culture, this it's maybe called the health and wealth gospel, but the idea that if you follow Jesus, you, you pray the right prayers, then then you'll be, you'll be healthy, you'll be rich, uh, you, you know, you have your holiday house and your, your private jet, um, you'll be eternally youthful, just 
a little bit of plastic surgery required. Um, but this idea will sell for people because you're like, yeah, that all sounds really, really good. The whole point of sacrifice is that it's not really good. So sacrifice is it's just a tough sell in this day and age. Uh, uh, my son plays, uh, Kelso, both my sons play Kelso football, and, and my oldest one, is, he plays a little bit of special teams on varsity, and they had a playoff game yesterday. And so um, so we had to go up to Seattle for a playoff game, uh, and it was just pouring down rain, pouring down rain when we left. And we're driving up there, and I'm thinking in my mind, this is going to be miserable. Because the thing, one thing that's worse than driving in the rain is watching a football game sitting in the rain. Like, this is, why are we doing this? I don't, I, the team they're playing is supposed to be pretty good. Like, this is, this is not going to be good at all. And then we get just north of, um, of Toledo, up there by the Winlock exit, and it had been raining so hard that the, the freeway was just covered in water. There was like 100 yards of standing water. And of course, I hit it going like 70 miles an hour. And I'm hydroplaning like crazy. And at this point, my, my family learns that if I one day perish in a car wreck, my last words will probably be uh, more colorful and less prayerful than <laughs> I would like to admit. Um, we make it through that. There's actually about two miles further, there's another stretch of standing water on the freeway and everybody slows way down coming up to it. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course they're all slowing down slowing down because we all just hit that last one at 70 and everyone like, you know, lost their minds. Uh, but we're driving up and we get to Seattle and, and I'm thinking this is such a sacrifice. We hit a little bit of traffic. Maybe Google Maps led us astray trying to beat the traffic. You know, when you do the Google Maps thing, and you're like, this is going to work out great. It said I saved eight minutes. And then, and then you just watch the time gets later and later as you're sitting at red lights. <laughs> like, we got there 10 minutes after it said we would. So we lost two minutes, I guess. But anyhow, what a sacrifice to go and watch this game. But we get to Seattle and the sun comes out. And the city is colorful with fall colors. We, we did the Pikes Market thing. We ended up eating food at an outdoor table, overlooking Puget Sound, fall colors all around, sunshine. I mean, it was just, it was picturesque. It was remarkable. And I thought to myself, driving up, when it rains really hard like that, I can't help but think to myself, I need to move. I need to move somewhere else. I don't like that rain happening. And then I'm sitting in Seattle, I'm like, the Pacific Northwest in the fall is just the best. It's so beautiful. We're so lucky to live here. Um, the football game was a big loss, but the weather was so nice that it, it felt like a sacrifice that was totally worth it. In fact, we were driving home, and I was telling my wife, Laura, you know, if we hadn't have had a football game, hadn't had to go up there for a football game, there's no way we would have circled November 4th on the calendar and said, you know what? Let's go have lunch in Seattle that day. I bet the weather's going to be great. There's no way we would have ever done that. And so I was thankful for the sacrifice that we made because, uh, because it was all worth it. Oh, so we're driving up. And this is another thing that's, that jumped out to me while I was driving up. Do you guys remember, I don't know if it was 10, 15 years ago. I, I thought it was maybe in my childhood, but I don't think the technology would have been there in my childhood. But they put that digital the first digital advertisement board up there just north of uh, Tacoma. 
And there was a little bit of a uh, controversy about it because, you know, like drivers need any like flashing screens distracting them from driving. Did, little did they know we'd all have them in our cars in no time, right? Um, but we're driving up through that same stretch. And I was thinking about the original digital board. And you get to that stretch of the freeway and in like two or three miles, I, I was counting them on the way home. There's like over a dozen digital screens with like messages and and scenery and ads and all of this stuff just it's everywhere up there and i was thinking my goodness how much has changed and and you know people that have done studies they figure that in our modern lives we are experiencing on a daily basis 4000 to 10000 digital advertisements so with your phones and your social media and driving up by five through Tuck Willow or whatever it might be, uh, we are just inundated with all of these messages about how good things could be. You know, this is, this is cheap. It costs you nothing at all, but it's going to be so incredibly valuable in your life. Uh, th- this, this thing you should do, it, it's so easy, but it'll make a huge difference or, or, you know, they're, they're giving this away for free. It's, it's remarkable. Uh, Jess got here this morning and, and it's a Sunday routine sometimes for her to hand me the junk mail and she just doesn't want anything to, she just doesn't want anything. She doesn't want me to miss some great opportunities that are out there. And so I opened the letter and it was free resources for your church. This is amazing. What a deal. People are, <laughs> anyways, I threw it away. Um, but, but we we experience this all the time. People trying to sell us stuff and, uh, and, in light of that, I thought you might be interested to know that Jesus tried his hand at being an ad man himself one time. He tried selling his disciples on sacrifice. We can read all about it in Matthew chapter 16. Boy, that was a long way of getting there. Matthew 16, you can open your Bibles. Uh, at this point, we're over halfway through Matthew's gospel. Jesus' disciples have been following him for some time. And in the beginning of Matthew 16, uh, Jesus is asking the disciples, hey, who do the, the crowds say that I am? And, and the disciples are saying, hey, these, you know, these good Jewish crowds, some are saying you're a prophet, some are saying you're Elijah, and that's all good and interesting. And then Jesus says to his disciples, who do you believe that I am? And Peter, in a, in a moment, a, a rarity for him because he was so uh, mild-mannered and quiet all the time, he speaks up and he says, you are. You are the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And and Jesus says to him, Peter, you are blessed because God has revealed this to you. In other words, Peter, you're right. That's the right answer. That is who I am. So this is a bit of an epiphany for the apostles in this moment. They've been following this guy. They've been following this teacher. They've been listening to his teachings. But in this moment, Peter at least really grasps who it is that he is following. He's following the promised Jewish Messiah. And put yourselves for just a moment into, into Peter's shoes as he's, as he's comprehending what has just happened. Imagine you're Peter. You know, he's a member of these uh, conquered and oppressed, impoverished people. The Romans have been ruling over Jerusalem for uh, some time at this point, and, and they're not the kindliest of people. Um, and, and his people have been looking for an opportunity, hoping for an opportunity to overthrow this Roman rule 
and, and be in charge again. Peter grew up on stories of, of King David and King Solomon. And wasn't it great some generations ago when we were masters of our, of our own kingdom and rulers of our own destiny and, and things went great when God was blessing us? Um, he'd grown up on prophecies as well. The, the promise to God's people that he's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send an anointed one who is going to rule as king over a kingdom that will know no end. This Messiah is going to be victorious over his enemies. In fact, he's going to rule the whole world. And in this moment, Peter is like, Jesus, I really think that you are that very person that we're talking about. I really think that Messiah is you. And Jesus is like, yep, you're right. I am the Messiah. And we'll pick up reading in verse 21. So on the heels of this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It's like Jesus' ministry, at least with his disciples, is leading up to this point and this this kind of mountaintop thing happens where they go, oh my gosh, we're following the Messiah. This is it. He really is the one who's going to change everything. And they have this exciting experience and, and, and then the next thing Jesus is telling them is, all right, this is how this is going to go. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer all kinds of things at the hands of the religious leaders there. In fact, I'm going to be killed. But that's not the end of the story. I'm going to be raised again on the third day. Peter takes him aside, verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You, you ever have a conversation where you had to pull somebody aside? Like, I need to talk to you for a minute. Could you imagine taking Jesus aside? <laughs> you know what? Let me talk to you before things get out of hand. He's, he rebuked him. He says, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter's expectation for the Messiah being, you know, the Messiah having to suffer, the Messiah being killed, that he doesn't catch that at all, at least not in this stage of his development. You know, later on, after Jesus' resurrection, his followers, they reread the scriptures, they reread the Old Testament, they, it, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? And they can see it there. They can see the portrait of the suffering servant. They can see that, that the Messiah must suffer and die on behalf of, the, you know, for the sins of the people. But at this point, they are... They're wholly and totally expecting a triumphant military king, not a suffering servant. And so he takes Jesus aside. He's like, never, Jesus, these things can't happen. This cannot be how it goes. It could never happen to you. And then Jesus turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Think about Jesus' experience in this, and I don't know what, what that totally looked like, the Holy Spirit speaking to his heart, what it was like when the man Jesus uh, comprehends suffering and the crucifixion and, and all of that. I mean, we know that in the Garden of Gethsemane on the, on the night that he's betrayed before he goes and is arrested, that he's, he is sweating drops of blood. He's anguished in his soul over this assignment that's been given to him. And so it almost would feel, you could imagine in some ways, it would almost be a comforting thought 
that his disciples would be like, no, Jesus, you don't have to do that. This whole thing of suffering that you've resolved to face, actually, there's a better way. There's a cheaper way. You don't have to pay full price for the redemption of humanity. I almost wonder if in Jesus' stern rebuke of Peter, if there isn't a little bit of urgency on his part because he's like, Peter, this sounds too good to be true. And my heart is, you know, almost tempted by it. No, Peter, that is not how it's going to be. Get behind me, Satan. You have, you're, what what did he say? You are, um, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Human concerns. You know, a lot of our aversion to opportunities that we might be presented to sacrifice, our, our hesitancy on these things tend to do with our human concerns, right? And human concerns are concerning. You know, when you're, hydroplaning on I-5 with your family full of your loved ones, I mean, your car full of your loved ones, like, I have some very human concerns in that moment. Like, this feels like desperate times. I don't want everybody to die because I was neglecting to drive safely. But when we are considering the right path for our lives, we're reminded to not just hold on to merely human concerns, but to have in mind the concerns of God as well. Jesus continues here, and and here's where he really starts his ad pitch for for sacrifice. Uh, Verse 24, Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. This might not be the most appealing suggestion, but he certainly has our attention, or his disciples' attention at this point. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple. Let's analyze Jesus' target market at this point. The target market he's trying to sell sacrifice is to anyone who wants to be his disciple. Is he hinting in any way that if you want to be a disciple, that sacrifice is in any way not for you? He's really not. He's casting a pretty wide net here. He doesn't say if anybody wants to be my class one disciples or if anybody wants to be the grade A disciples. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple. And as we do, oftentimes when we're presented with an advertisement for something, you have to decide, is this relevant for me? AARP keeps sending me stuff. I refuse. It's not relevant for me at this point. How, how dare they? How dare they? But here we are. If anyone wants to be my disciple, you have to decide. Is that relevant for me? Do I want to be Christ's disciple? If the answer is yes, then we have three simple steps. You must deny yourself. You must. It's, it's a requirement Deny yourself. You have to say no to yourself. You have to say yes to something that's greater than yourself. You have to take up your cross. You know, Jesus says this to his disciples before the resurrection. And, and up to that point, Roman crosses had only ever had one result. A lot of suffering and the end of somebody's story. As I consider that, I'm reminded too, Jesus is saying this in a day when 
when crosses and crucifixion were a thing that was happening. You could go out on Saturday and watch it. Well, maybe not on Saturday. Sabbath and all that. But um, it was a thing that was happening. You know, it's a, it's a difference. I was thinking about, have you ever been somewhere and someone's complaining about how difficult something is and they're like, well, this is just my cross to bear. And I'm, I've maybe even said it at some point or at least thought it like, oh, you know, I mean, uh, the senior center next door is getting re-roofed and this, their workers did some weird stuff with tarp that blocked one of our gutters. And so the gutter filled up this week. And the water's coming through. And like, who gets the call when the water's coming through? Well, of course I do. You know, who else are you going to call when the water's coming through? And I thought to myself, you know, this is just my cross to bear. And then I'm so embarrassed because <laughs> an inconvenient phone call doesn't even compare. I don't even know what crucifixion would really look like. I had the privilege of sitting in on a, on a presentation, a drug awareness presentation by the Washington State Patrol at at Cowieman Middle School, and they had, uh, I didn't realize it was going to be like one of those scared straight, like, presentations, and so they had these graphic photos of, like, tissue damage from drug use, and, like, you know, people changing over time. I mean, there was someone who went from looking like, you know, one of the Care Bears to Skeletor in, like, five months, and he's like, this, you know, drugs are bad for you, okay? Um, it was graphic. It was disturbing. I, I was thinking to myself in one of the pictures, I was like, I don't know. I could almost, I could almost need to run to a garbage can right now. Wouldn't that be funny if someone ran a garbage can <laughs> wretched in the middle of this performance? Um, but anyhow, crucifixion, graphically brutal. I've never watched confession. I've never watched the passion of the Christ because I, I mean, one, I already know the story, but two, I heard it was really graphic and brutal, and I was like, I don't know if I can watch that. It 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 turns my stomach. Um, it's to people who understand the reality of that in terms that are far greater than an inconvenient phone call or not saying something mean to somebody who said something mean to you, you know, our crosses to bear. It's people who who maybe knew people who had been crucified, who watched it happen and the brutality of it and the suffering. And Jesus says to people who understand that and have seen it, he says to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. The third thing he says in following him, there's at least some comfort in that for me. One, knowing that wherever Jesus would call me to go is somewhere he's walked ahead of me. You know, we have confidence that Jesus is, he knows what it's like to, to do certain things because he's been there and he's done that. He knows what it's like to suffer for doing right because he's been there and he's done that. So thank goodness. And, and then the other part of it is that he's, he's promised to be with us. And so if I'm following him, I'm walking with him, I'm not alone in that. And so on the one hand, there's this this really high bar. There's this really important requirement, I guess, that I would deny myself and I would take up my cross. And on the other hand, I have assurance that he's with me. He continues, he says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is the part that maybe rings a little bit more like a commercial. There's something positive in here. The claim that he's making Although it does seem paradoxical, maybe a little upside down or 
or it seems like it, it makes no sense, but the claim he's making is that in some mysterious way, those who are willing to surrender their lives to being my disciple, those who are willing to trust and obey me, those who are willing to sacrifice, those who are willing to abandon the self-preserving methods, the selfishness that we walk in, they will find true life. They will find something of greater value out there. It's the promise that those who were willing to brave the rainy freeway yesterday would find a sunny afternoon. So he's, he's speaking somewhat in riddles, and he's maybe not being perfectly clear, but the message that he's giving his disciples is, is lean into this. I want you to trust that there will be, the sacrifices will be worth it in the end. The sacrifices will be worth it. He says, what good would it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit their soul? Or what could anyone give in exchange for their soul? And he's inviting his disciples, and then I think he's inviting us through the, the text being preserved for us. He's inviting us to think about these things that he's saying. To meditate on these ideas. To ruminate on it for a while. To be like, yeah. Is there something out there that's more valuable than the entire world? If somebody offered you a chance to have the whole world, right? To have it all. You could have it all. What would you be willing to give? I mean, if I had it to give, I, I, I can't even imagine what I'd be willing to give for like a beach house in Cannon Beach, much less the entire world. I mean, I love that town. I'd, I'd you know, I wouldn't give my firstborn for it, but, <laughs> but it's, the whole world. And yet Jesus says, what good would it do you to gain the whole world but to lose your soul? I think sometimes the reason that we can be so tempted or the reason we can be so hesitant to sacrifice the things that God's calling us to sacrifice is because we don't, we don't fully grasp the value of a soul. We don't fully comprehend how much there is for us. We don't know the wonders that await us in that moment when we'll, we'll see him face to face. It's our fullness of God passage for this whole 40 days, right? That we would have power to grasp how wide and long and deep, high and deep is God's love for us. We just don't. We don't grasp these things. You know, someday there's going to be a day that we're all going to live in. We're all going to walk in where the greatest joys you've experienced in this life are, are, are going to be like a fleeting dream you can't remember two minutes after you wake up. I have these dreams sometimes, and I wake up, and I think, that was amazing. I don't know if it was prophetic. I don't know if it was, but I should write it down. I've had like whole screenplays in my mind before, like for sure. Blockbuster movie. No one's ever done this before. And then like in the time it takes me... <laughs> to like get from, you know, to like in front of a keyboard so I can start to write this down. Like it's just gone. It's just gone. Just like that. I imagine in some ways that, uh, that that's what it's going to be like. Things that seem so important, things that seem so wonderful, things that seem so hard right now are just going to be as, as fleeting as those brilliant dreams I've had, those great ideas. I mean, if one of them sticks one day, you're going to be like, I knew him when, uh, Anyways, 
It's that good. You know, why would anyone deny themselves? Why would anyone take up a cross to follow Jesus? Why would anyone buy into that? Yes, the cost is high. It sounds prohibitively expensive. The cross is a metaphor for death. Who wants to sign up for that kind of a thing? It's painful to deny myself, especially if I'm denying myself for undeserving others. You would only endure these things. You would only sign up for this if you were convinced that what you have sacrificed is going to be worth it because you're pursuing something of superior value. The Apostle Paul was someone who sacrificed a lot to follow Jesus. Prior to meeting Jesus, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was well-respected in his tradition. He was, you know, the valedictorian president voted most likely to succeed type guy. Just a, a rising, shining star in the Pharisaical movement. And then when he meets Jesus, he becomes rejected by them. He's an outcast. He's persecuted by them. He's stoned to death. He's chased out of cities. He ends up being executed. I mean, he gave up a life of comfort and privilege for the privilege of preaching the gospel. He writes in Philippians chapter 3 of his former life, verse 7, he says, Whatever those things that were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I know I've taught on this passage before. It's probably been like 10 years, that's how. But I got worried that someone might be bored if I'm talking about this again now. So if 10 years ago you were at Kelso High listening to me say this, just forgive me for a moment. I know not everyone was there. I consider it all a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. We only have one word for knowledge in our English language, but, but the Greek word for this is talking about experiential knowledge, not the stuff you learn in a classroom, but the stuff you learn through life experience. Maybe another way of saying this is Paul saying the surpassing worth of experiencing a relationship with Jesus. It's experiential relational knowledge because it's related to a person who's a real person in Paul's life. He says, I consider it garbage. Some would say it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, like a curse word for garbage. Um, I wonder what Paul would say if he hydroplaned on the freeway. Um, he says, uh, sorry, uh, I really got off there. Sorry. Uh, Sorry, uh, uh, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, uh, for whose sake I have lost all things. Notice how Paul talks about his relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the one for whom I have lost all things. And, and if, you've, if you know his life at all, he's not lying. He's, he's lost it all, as it were. I have never talked about Jesus that way in my life. Maybe it's just my optimistic outlook. I tend to talk a lot more about what I gain. I tend to talk a lot more and try to sell people on what they can gain in following Jesus. But there's a, a bigger and broader picture than just a, what's in it for you in this following Jesus venture. He says, I consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. The righteousness that Paul experienced is not based on how he's behaved or what he has done. You know, you can, you can tell. You can tell when a pharisaical spirit gets its claws into you or me or us. When in, inside of us there is even the slightest bit of, of superiority because of something you've done, a decision you've made. If you're feeling like, I'm doing pretty good with Jesus today because, because I did this and this, or I didn't do that or that, you've got to watch out. That pharisaical spirit has its claws in you. And it would love you to feel smugly superior to those around you because of your good behavior. It would much rather you had that than you experience what it means to know that I have a righteousness that's not coming from the law. It's superior to that. He says, not having a righteousness that comes from the law. This is the middle of verse 9. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Actually, there's been a lot of uh, scholars arguing for a better English rendering of that verse would be, and you'll even see it, it's now a footnote in your NIV um, but but instead of that which comes through faith in Christ, that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ. This is about what God has done for us. This is about Christ's sacrifice for us. It's not about us in any way. He says, I want to know Christ. Again, that experiential knowledge. I want to experience Christ. I want to interact with Christ. I want to know him in a relational way. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings. Some translations say to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. To become like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. If I was to paraphrase what Paul is saying, I think Paul is saying, I want to know the whole Jesus. I want every part of him. Have you ever had friendships that um, that felt like that person is only selectively interested in you? Um, they like hanging out with you when you have a good time, but but if you're struggling, they never answer their phone, or they want to be a part of this thing. If we're all doing this, is how this is, I'm describing my relationship with the Seattle Seahawks right now. Um, <laughs> if they're winning. I'll even buy a t-shirt, right? But if they're losing, I can't give three and a half hours of my Sunday afternoon to watching them play. I'm not even interested. Don't even, I don't even know who's on the team. And of course, the real fans are, are hurt that I would feel this way, right? And the Seahawks are probably like, James, we're actually not interested. Don't even buy, don't be a bandwagoner. Get away from me. What is it like to be fully accepted in the totality of who you are. I think in some ways, the invitation that we have to, to live a life of sacrifice, to join in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, is because it's the invitation to know the full Jesus Christ. To not be selective in our relationship with him, but to receive him as he is, and not as we wish he would be, just because that would be more convenient or comfortable for us. 
Paul is all in on this following and knowing Jesus. He wants the fullness. He's not satisfied with the shallow end of the relationship pool. He's like, I want to know the whole Jesus. Yes, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I think in this stage in my life, one of the most important lessons I'm learning is how to to love and accept and pursue people in the fullness of who they are. How much it can impact somebody's lives when they feel you drawn to the fullness of who you are. They feel you welcoming them in the fullness of who they are, the good and the bad. It's really wonderful to get to live in these kinds of relationships. And the invitation into this kind of relationship is exactly what God is giving you in Jesus Christ. And it's precisely what Jesus is, I don't like the term selling in this way, but but because it works with the analogy I've been leaning into, I'm just going to say it. Like it's what he's selling you with sacrifice. Saying, here's an opportunity to be fully given in relationship with me, to know and to be fully known. The whole Jesus, the fullness of God. And as tough a sell as sacrifice is, we do so well to remember that our Savior is the suffering servant. That our victorious King is the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. We do well to remember that that the one who reigns supreme over the entire cosmos is the one who's chosen to reveal himself through self-giving, self-sacrificing, others-centered, others-embracing love. As we go into this week four, as we start on the downhill journey of our 40 days for fullness, it's my hope that we will embrace this opportunity to embrace the whole Jesus especially in what it looks like and what it means for us to embrace the call to a life of sacrifice as a believer. I have some discussion questions. Do we have time for this today? Hmm. Let's pray. And then we'll gather at the Lord's table. And then if you want to scan the QR code and have discussions after we close, you're welcome to hang out and do that. Lord, who are we that you would give it all for us? Who are we that you would look at us and say, worth the sacrifice? Father, I pray that before we move anywhere else in our minds, that in this moment, uh, you would just help us to see how much you love us, how much you value us. How could it be that a God who has everything would be motivated to give anything for us? We thank you that your heart is for us and with us and that your heart does not withhold anything in pursuit of us. May we just receive that truth today. Today, as we come before the Lord's table, we have a table that's been set with bread representing the body of Christ and a cup that represents the blood of Christ, his sacrifice given for you. 
his proclamation that you are worth it. Spoken as he lays down his very life for your own. And I just think as we close our time in, in worship together and as you have an opportunity to come up to the table and receive it, my, my prayer is that you would receive it as, as nourishment for your own commitment to living a life of humble sacrifice, uh, to looking at the people around you and saying they're worth it. Scripture says no greater love has anyone than this than they would lay down their life for their friends. That we would be people whose faith in Christ is defined by that kind of love, is put in into action in our society by that kind of love. And uh, and we would move into that, fully trusting him to carry us through. Um, so Jesus, we just thank you again for your sacrifice. It sustains us. It gives us life. Thank you for the opportunity today to come to the table and eat and drink of the good things you have done. May our hearts and our souls and our spirits be nourished by your good work. In Jesus' name, amen. As we worship, uh, we would just invite you to come up, tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. Uh, come up and receive Christ's sacrifice for you today.